up only. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0, Hello and welcome to Up Only TV. I'm Ledger, got Kobe, Jason from Telegram, and special guests to be announced coming up here in just a second before we get to it. Let me tell you about our partner. We're thankful to have him on board. It's Blockfolio. Go to uponly.tv slash Blockfolio. Check it out today. Make your first trade. All you got to do is go to uponly.tv slash Blockfolio. If Cam Ferguson music can do it in one day, you can do it today. Just go to uponly.tv slash Blockfolio. It's got all the same tracking features you've always loved since 2014. Fully powered by FTX Books. It's a mobile-first experience that's fantastic to work with. It's a pleasure. Thanks to Blockfolio for being our partner. Let's get to the episode. Kobe, hello. Hello, mate. How are you? I am uh, doing well. Uh, you look um, you look a little bit stressed today. You all right? Yeah, I got the second uh, part of my five G chip, you know, coursing through <laughs> my veins right now. So uh, I think I'm on the upside from it. So I'm, I'm all right. What about I just, yourself? I was just wondering if you were worried because you uh, exposed that you only watch e girl fleets. <laughs> yeah, I saw the I saw your note. Um, I guess that means I watch Gainsey's fleets more than anybody else's. So. R.I.P. Maybe. Maybe. I thought we were going to have like a, a market up only during the show today, but then Biden dumped on us. So um, yeah. maybe it's just another classic up only show while the market goes down. Yeah. We we'll um, sit here with our massive regrets, you know, talking about how much Biden would be better for uh, for the world than Trump. And I don't know. We don't want to make enemies here on up only today. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, chat thinks chat thinks Travis is Jason. So. Yeah. <laughs> That's OK. So, so, Trav, do you want to introduce yourself to uh, to the chat? And Jason, do you want to say hello from the darkness? Because you've got, like, no profile picture on the stream. Hello. That's Jason from <laughs> Telegram. I'll put, like, a little Telegram logo in the corner or something, see if I can do it without ruining the entire stream. Yeah, hey, hey guys, Travis Kling here. Uh, I run a crypto fund called Ikigai Asset Management. Uh, thanks, thanks for having me. Welcome, welcome. So... Jason, I hit you up and I was like, "You look, the people want the profit back. They want God Jason, Jason from Telegram. They're feeling anxious about the market and they just need, they need you. They need some guidance through these dark times. Um, and you were like, yeah, I'll come, but I want my boy Travis with me. Uh, why did you invite Travis? You got to tell us. Is Travis going to leak the alpha as well? Do you just steal Travis's calls and send them to me like I do with Path? I mean, we both kind of share our alpha, just like little alpha balls. We kind of cuddle with them, you know, kind of warm them up, put them on the Barbie, you know. I don't know, like out back, we'd have a little barbecue. No, I'm just kidding. No, Travis is a nice guy. I've known him, known about him since, I think, 2018. And I think I met him either late 2018 or 2019. And I don't know, just he's a, he's a very solid, nice guy and uh, runs a cool firm. Travis, Travis like, have you been... Have you been trading exclusively on Jason calls like I have? <laughs> Not exclusively, but they, they definitely help. You know, I mean, one of the <laughs> one of the fun things about crypto, my, my career was in traditional hedge fund investing before I jumped into crypto. And one of the fun things about this is that it's just a lot more collaborative 
and communicative than traditional asset class investing. And, you know, you kind of have thoughtful analysis that ends up as currency and you kind of swap that back and forth. And to the extent, you know, you get into these kind of small telegram chats with, with active traders and to the extent that there's just a, a good flow of information around, you know, everybody is, is better off for that. It's uh it's, it's one of the, the nicest things about crypto to me. Travis, I did not realize, uh, until moments ago that you're the Travis Kling from Twitter that I followed for a long time. There's just a <laughs> lot more like neck and shoulder muscle in real life versus <laughs> your profile picture. So you've been lifting over the past couple of years. I mean, I don't know what else there is to do with this job. You, you punt magic internet money and you exercise <laughs> to stay sane. So yeah. Yeah, man. Uh, it's nice, all to, nice to meet you. We've actually had a lot of requests for you outside of Jason from Telegram making you a special <laughs> guest. I just did not connect it in the slightest. And Kobe <laughs> doesn't tell me who's coming on until it's like, you know, two minutes before we're supposed to be live. So, yeah. So I, I don't know if the viewers know, but for this show, no matter the guest, we do zero preparation. We <laughs> just do it. Not. We do it live. It's like we just do it for live. And to make sure that Ledger can't um, get ahead and do a little bit of prep and know more about the guests than me, I just don't tell him who's coming on until right before. He tells like, me absolutely just, nothing. Just, like I build out the scene thinking that it's just going to be me and Kobe on video <laughs> today. So I have like these sources. It's all pretty and stuff. And then he's like, oh, yeah. And some guy named Travis is going to be on. I'm like, some guy. Named, what Travis? Who's this? Messing up all my scenes, but you know, just FYI. What um, uh, what I like about what you what you just said, you know, like the uh, in crypto, you have a bunch of people, and they're in these Telegram chats, or they're in a Discord um, group together, or you know, they're, they're like there's just people collaborating and sharing ideas. What I like about this is that my personal theory is everything leads back to cryptopathic. So the other day. <laughs> The other day, Suzu DM'd me and he was like, bro, can I, can I ask you a question about like your asset allocation, like your percentage allocations, like Bitcoin, ETH, DeFi, etc." And I messaged him back and we had a chat about it and like shared alpha. And then I remembered that I asked Path the same question like the two days before. And I was basically just kind of passing on where me and Path landed on. Everything's Path. Path is like the puppet master of all the VCs. Everyone's just trading on Path Alpha and now, and now Jason Alpha as well. Um, but it is true, like o- over the last sort of seven, eight years, I think the most valuable thing you could have is a good group of people who have um, different insights on the market to you and sort of mixed opinions and trade and come at it from uh, sort of different perspectives. So you can share alpha and like sort of keep each other sane and make sure everyone makes it together. Um, so, um, so yeah, I, I think that, I think that's uh, pretty true. So Jason, the people want to know your 800 K Bitcoin prediction. Is it still on the cards? Are you still a believer are you memeing us? Um, I think it'll be something. <laughs> I think it'll be something a little bit lower than that. I still like. I'm a, I'm a fan of adjusting to like what the market gives you, and like, I still think it's in the realm of possibility. Um, we just need to see some more strength here. Uh, I think this is like, Travis has a nice phrase where it's like fake week. Um, and like, I think this is that, but I would defer to Travis. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but like, 
I think it's definitely possible in the 600 to 800 range by end of the year. It could go into like Q1 2022, but like it, yeah, I think this is fake week, but yeah, I, I, I want to stay with that prediction, like in caveat at like 600 to 800 K. Like, I think that's reasonable, but you said, uh, you said it might be a little bit lower and Travis walks off. Yeah. <laughs> 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 All right, so you're like you're still on the cards in that sort of ballpark range end of year, and this is this is fake week. How are you seeing um, ETH strength strength against Bitcoin? I'm seeing it. Yeah. Uh, what do you mean? Is that does that is that also fake week? No, it's it's like authentic strong. <laughs> authentic strong. So how does uh, how does right, ETH look on, at the end on, of the? It's fake week, as in W E A K. The chat all thinks it means like it's fake week, like Shark Week. Uh, oh, I, that's what I thought it was as well. <laughs> I thought it was fake week as well. All right, I say fake week. Yeah, I'm fake week. I'm actually super strong. I just am fake week. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> so where is where does ETH end up in a uh, in a eight hundred dollars per Bitcoin by end of year world? Eight hundred thousand dollars per Bitcoin end of year world. Um, I have a, I have a, like, I have a post-it on my monitor that says no predictions, but fuck. <laughs> um, so like in this scenario of like a six to 800 K Bitcoin by the end of the year, Ethereum, like if we get to something like 0.15 or above, which is definitely possible given the product market fit it's experiencing with, with DeFi but and all sorts of others. That's the flippening, right? Like it, it, it kind of has to be because it fundamentally means that Ethereum has a, a, a much larger, like, you know, people like the, the, the abbreviation TAM, like it has an inherently much larger TAM than Bitcoin. Uh, even though there's more and more uh, addressable markets for Bitcoin as people discover its uses, like, DeFi and Ethereum and any of the neighboring protocols like Solana at all, like they address a much larger market. Uh, so I think if we were to look at it from a TA perspective, it probably puts it somewhere between 20 and 40. Um, so that's, that's kind of a base case, but that's just like, to be clear, you mean 20 and $40,000 per Ethereum. Yeah. And if anyone read the, the Arthur Hayes, uh, if anyone read, read the Arthur Hayes article recently, it, it has much higher predictions. So, like from that lens, it's pretty pretty conservative. Conservative against Hayes. Well, Hayes is now in the hands of the Feds, right? Oh, yeah, <laughs> I think he was released though because he turned himself in, and then he he was able to you know walk away uh, legally. So. He's, oh, that's great news! Yeah. Like, all right. So his predictions like, are on the cards. His predictions are on the cards because, like, if you, you can make predictions and then just like go to jail and then no one can even <laughs> can't even read people <laughs> mocking you about them. Your life, but, like, get, your life doesn't get better, and you're like eight by ten foot box. Bro. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Tw- like twenty to forty k ETH. I'd be happy with that price. I'd be happy <laughs> at twenty at twenty to forty thousand dollars per ETH. I might even become bearish. Like I'm like I'm a seller at these prices. I'm gonna, I'm sell. In in 15 years, there's going to be a video clip of me saying I'm a seller at these prices when ETH is worth like a trillion dollars per ETH. Um, all right, now we've got that out of the way. The final on, prediction we need is what is going to be the price of Safe Moon at the end of the year? <laughs> Travis. <laughs> oh man. 
Yeah, uh, no, no view there whatsoever. Yeah, that, I mean that stuff's a little disconcerting. I mean it's it's definitely disconcerting. I uh, I tend to agree with the chat chat spam of zero, but uh, I've been in crypto long enough to know it probably won't exactly be zero. Um, Kobe, we, right, got Lindsay, what are we got some new listeners who don't know the uh, incredible nature of uh, Jason from Telegram's predictions and the history of your relationship. So if you could offer that, they would be thankful. Yeah, I can uh, I can recount the tale. And um, you know what? Every time I tell the story, I dramatize it a little bit more and edit the memory in my brain. So if this seems exaggerated and fictionalized versus the previous time I told it, that is because as I tell stories, I try, I, I tend to uh, move them further and further away from the truth over time. Just as but an aside, only slightly. That's, that's how Brian Williams from NBC got canceled. Uh, because he converted <laughs> a story about being shot down in a helicopter or something. Do you remember that? <laughs> no, I, I'm, just, I don't just, know anything about America. Okay, just, um, just a little aside. All right, so what happened was I was just chilling one day. I was just sit, sitting at home, minding my own business, watching the market. Were you, you shooting b-ball? Yeah, I was shooting b-ball outside of the school. And Jason, um, he came up, pops up in my telegram, and he said, bro, listen, I've seen the future, and we're going to be close friends but you're not going to believe me unless I give you these predictions about what's going to happen over the next three months. And now we're not going to talk for the next three months, but here are my predictions. And they were all, um, they were all price predictions written on a piece of paper with charts hand drawn on paper. So it was like, here, (laughs) here's, here's what's going to happen over the next few months. Um, here are the, like, uh, here are the charts of how it's going to play out, but like hand-drawn on like a napkin or something. Um, and then three months passed and he, and he got back in touch. He was like perfect. Like it was absolutely perfect. It was like something like the price is going to go. I think the price was like 10K or 8K. I don't know if you remember. And you said it's going to go like 13, dump a bit. And then it's going to like teleport to previous all-time high, stall out and then break all-time high. And it just like followed the napkin piece of paper Um like almost perfectly. You should release the napkins as an NFT. You might make half an ETH, uh, which is going to be $20,000 as per your prediction. <laughs> um, so you sent like these predictions, like three months later, they all perfectly came true, like to the, to the tick of the, the napkin chart drawing. Um, and I, and I t- tweeted them out, I think. Uh, I tweeted out after the first one happened, saying Jason from Telegram like nailed these predictions. Here are his next ones. And the next one was um, it tops... It hits 30k by uh, January 1st and tops at 40k in January before pulling back. Um, and then, like, I think you said pull back to like 26, 27 or something. In January, it crossed 30k. It topped at like 42 in, in January. It dumped to like 26, 27. Um, but fortunately, this time I tweeted the predictions that you made ahead of time. Um, and then I think a couple of times afterwards, you did the same thing again. Like basically, there's been like four or five mid-range sort of time period uh, trades that have like perfectly come true. And I narrated them all on Twitter kind of as they've happened, except the, uh, the first one. And then earlier this year, you said um, 800K by the end of the year. Um, and that's where we are. Now the people want to know... Um, where the Jason Alpha comes from. They want to know why you do TA on napkins. I mean, 
to be 100% transparent, it's all about just putting in the hours and, you know, figuring out what works for you and what doesn't. But I think the most important thing is just finding a group of people that you can riff off of and have ideas thrown out and like validated or, or disproved. And just like, don't take it too seriously. It was, you know, 2020 was a hard year and everyone went through a lot. And, you know, they all had their battle last year, um, trying to get out into 2021, you know, all the better, on the better side of things. Um, And that's really all it was, you know, just trying to find opportunity in this, you know, crazy market, you know, once again. And, you know, you can only do that with other people because, you know, markets are people and people are markets. So you can't really claim any sort of like higher power other than just being able to know when you're wrong and, you know, understand when you have conviction and go with it. So, so from, from what I've seen from how you, um, how you do your analysis and how you trade is you, you seem to look for like fractals, like a structure that has happened in the past that might give us some hints about what's going to happen in the future. And you just said then, you know, it's about putting the hours in, putting the work in. So if I were a viewer who wants to, wants to make it, um, over the next couple of years, how would I even go about learning how to analyze like you do? What tools do I need? What books do I need to read? Uh, where do I need to go to make some friends? Uh, just, I mean, just start, <laughs> just start, like, just keep progressing. Like literally that's like, that's the answer. There's no silver bullet. There's no like all time, you know, good book. There's just, you know, pop open a chat go to the, your nearest forum, start talking, you know, if you find someone that is skilled, you know, great, learn from them and help them learn what you're good at. And if you don't find that, you know, move on and just make sure to always just, I don't know, just give people credit where credit's due and then figure out, you know, how can I help, you know, this community while also like bolstering everyone up uh, in terms of practicality, just open a chart, and just start drawing like horizontal lines. <laughs> just start drawing horizontal <laughs> lines. Like, that's yeah. uh, but you, some of that's based off of like uh, the last bull market went, you know, a, a number of multiples off of the all-time high breach, and so you're extrapolating some of that, right? Um, in terms of trying to find those targets. Uh, I mean, yes and no. It's, it's, it's honestly just a huge confluence of like everything that I've kind of like personally distilled into like what I see as valuable. Um, and you know, that's, you know, basic, like literally just basic fundamental price action analysis. Like I've come full circle to realize is just the bedrock of everything here. Uh, cause if you can't analyze that, you can't analyze anything else. Otherwise, you know, every, cause every other indicator or metric in trading has some sort of like leak or uh, non-alpha, I guess you could call it. Um, so you really just got to like understand the fundamental rubrics and basics of price action and then go from there, you know, then branch out and figure out what works, what doesn't. And just go through that for yourself, you know, literally go through everything, you know, lose money, you make money, but also importantly, like lose enough money to realize something doesn't work and then <laughs> discard it and then make more money. Um, and then find friends that have the same view and that have their own niche, their own alpha, learn from them, find what works for you from them, discard what doesn't, and then supply them with sufficient and adequate alpha for what they're doing. So I think that is actually the truth, isn't it? Like the, the way to make it is to try things 
and continually lose money until you figure out something where instead of losing money, you're making money or you're breaking even, but you would have made money with some slight strategic modifications. And that's about it. Because once you do that, you you end up having conviction in your own analysis and strategy. And I think that's the most important um, part of the of the whole game. Um, unfortunately, it's not what the viewers want to hear. The viewers want to hear there's like a, a pill you can take <laughs> and then you're profitable. <laughs> Yeah, the viewers want to know like what are your bags that I can copy trade? Yeah, Travis, do you have any pills that people can take that makes them profitable? Like how do they how do they get how do they get better than they are? Uh, I definitely don't. I <laughs> I would definitely echo what Jason said that like the raw number of hours just staring at this shit. I mean, like thousands of hours, and so I. I fell down the crypto rabbit hole like pretty late to this. I fell down the crypto rabbit hole summer of 17. I was working at a, a traditional hedge fund, convinced myself this was all going to be a big deal. Uh, was kind of trading some PA in the back part of 17, left 0.72 December of 17, decided to start my own crypto hedge fund, launched that in December 2018. You know, it was kind of trading PA through through 18 and then started trading other people's money and at the end of 18. And and um, just the raw number of hours, just staring at it for thousands and thousands of hours. And uh, eventually, you know, I, I, I say this pretty often, like before I jumped into crypto, I never could have imagined that I could have the type of relationship with a financial instrument that I have with Bitcoin. Like, it's like, I mean, it it feels like, it feels like, I mean, well, yeah, I mean, you know, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a, uh, what's the term, a brutal mistress. Uh, But, but, but it also just, uh, I've spent so much time on it that it just feels like my hand. Like, it's just like you become you like become one with this thing. And 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 maybe it's worth maybe I can back up a second. Just kind of I just can talk a minute about what we do at Ikigai. We we launched the, the fund in December of 18. It's a multi strat. We can kind of do whatever we want to with with, you know, very little exception or, or, or kind of limitation. Uh, but what we have done since September 2019 is a, a strategy called programmatic discretionary which was a term i just made up one night in the summer of 2019 when we were working on all this stuff and 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 programmatic discretionary is is systematic models driven exposure to bitcoin and as of six weeks ago eth as well too uh with the purpose of outperforming just holding bitcoin on a risk adjusted basis so we we you know and and there's a layer of discretion that sits on top of that it's my discretion so i kind of like trade proprietary models and kind of incorporate uh, a bit of discretion on, on top of that, as opposed to just having, you know, kind of fully automated execution hooked up to, to, um, to models. Although we, we do have some of that as well too. Uh, and so the vast majority of our AUM over the last 18 months has been deployed into basically back and forth between BTC and cash. We've got like, you know, a couple other smaller positions, um, uh, FTT is our, is our only buy and hold alt, uh, shout out, <laughs> shout out to SBF. Uh, yeah. And so, so I've just spent a tremendous amount of time 
on Bitcoin, both in the in the quantitative data that it produces and, you know, kind of understanding the kind of crypto qualitative layer that that sits on top of that and the kind of macro overlay that sits on top of that. And, and we've been able to find pretty good edge sort of through that stack. But it but it has it has like, you know, you fast forward a couple of years and it, and it has led me to have this relationship with this thing that I never in my wildest dreams would have thought I I could have had when I was, you know, I was punting long short equities for my whole career before this. So it's uh yeah, it's it's, it's been a ride. Um yeah, and I would, I I guess just kind of a couple other things on to Jason's point. Definitely just put in the raw hours. Uh or if you don't want to do it or you don't have time, give your money to somebody that has put in the raw hours. And then if you're gonna do it yourself, um, you know, being being flexible, I think like one of the many hard things about this job is knowing when to be flexible and knowing when to be inflexible, like, like, like knowing when to, you know, ignore a signal that's worked for you in the past because you're seeing things and other things that just, you know, kind of lead you to believe that that one thing that normally tells you to do something, uh, you know, maybe this time's not the time that that's going to work and when to actually go with the thing that's kind of worked in the past. And that's just, I don't know. I don't know what to tell people on that other than just getting reps, a lot, a lot of reps. And, um, you know, and then, and then another thing that's like, I think uh, sort of like, a, uh, it's kind of like the flip side of the coin of the great part about talking to other smart, active traders and getting, you know, insights from them is like, you can't let other guys get into your head too bad. And so you're constantly having to like balance, you know, what other people's views are, you know, take what you can, you know, take what you want to take, ignore what you, what you want to ignore and like figuring out, you know, how to, how to, how to, how to do that over time to the point where it, it like maximizes, you know, your, your investing abilities, you know, that's a, it's a, it's a real challenge. Uh, and it's just kind of part of this deal. I have a question about, um, the timing for your fund, because it seems like a lot of the funds that did have done well, they started in the bear market where it was a lot harder to kind of get going. How important was the timing from the point of I'm going to do this and it's the top of the market to like you actually spin it up and, you know, you're kind of in the trenches of the bear market. Um, how well did that kind of prepare you for what was to come and, and to succeed? Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't exactly on purpose. We, we we actually wanted to launch the fund October 1st, 2018, and we got pushed back we got pushed back a month for legal and we got pushed back a month to get a bank account at Silvergate. That was back when it was like, you know, like a huge I mean, a, a stunningly difficult process to get a bank account at, at at Silvergate. And uh so we had like a, a pretty good, you know, chunk of change rounded up, kind of soft circled from investors. And we sent out our offering docs the the second week in November 2018, like the week of the price crash in 18. And a good chunk of those initial investors were were folks that had made a lot of money in ETH and, you know, had committed to us, you know, a certain amount of, of money you know, through 2018, the middle part of 18, as we were kind of building all this stuff out and, and getting ready to launch the fund. 
And, you know, if you, everybody remembers what the ETH chart looked like over the course of 2018 uh, through that summertime. And then, you know, it got cut in half in, in a month. And all of that, essentially all of the capital that we had circled up just like disappeared. And we, and we launched, we launched the fund with like a tiny minuscule amount of capital to start. And then just, you know, first part of 2019 into the spring of 19, into the summer of 19, into the back of 19 and, uh, and then evolved our investment strategy, uh, you know, to be this more kind of systematic models driven deal. And then kind of started putting up really good numbers, you know, at that period of time. And then, you know, but for us, we were, we were still, you know, quite small going into Black Thursday. And uh, we were, we were 10% net short on Black Thursday. And so, you know, put up this like, you know, really, really good number for in March of 2020. And then on the back of what happened with monetary and fiscal policies, in conjunction with, you know, having a, having a really nice track record, then, uh, you know, th- then the interest kind of picked up in, 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 a, in a massive way. Yeah. How did you actually play, um, you know, from the 10% net short to closing that position out and flipping long? Like, was it a really fast process or did you just basically take profit on the way down and, you know, gradually turn from neutral to long? Or did you know, essentially, like, this is, this is the big opportunity and you just completely flipped? So co- covered the short within probably 700 bucks of the bottom and uh, got to 50% long by the end of the month in March. So played it like reasonably well. Now we were 50% around 50% long for most of the month in April. And obviously, you know, April was this like tremendously strong month for, for Bitcoin. So we, we, we lagged that month, but you know, I mean, that's like, you know, (laughs) and I did, I I did traditional for a decade before crypto and like, you know, that period of time, like you, you know, you should, you should not expect to encounter a more challenging trading environment than what was going on during that period of time. And trying, you know, and there's all kinds of guys that got sideways. There were, le- you know, legendary investors in traditional that put up some pretty bad numbers in 2020. And part of it was just, you know, people didn't know how to frame something like COVID. And then in conjunction with that, uh, what the monetary and fiscal policy response, there just wasn't any playbook for that. I mean, the Fed, the Fed did three trillion of QE in six weeks, like just so far beyond anything we'd ever experienced. And, you know, as it turned out, that was just, you know, this massive steroid shot into asset prices. Um, and, you know, everything just went up in a straight line from there. But making that call in real time, hard to do. Yeah, when I look in hindsight, like I've pulled up a couple of the charts. Um, I mean, the S&P from a meltdown perspective, like how much time it retraced was more severe than what Bitcoin did. Like Bitcoin's was pretty concentrated over a couple of weeks. And the uh, legacy markets, the degree of meltdown that occurred there and this mass liquidation of everything as people just had to gather up dollars was truly unreal. 
I yeah, like the idea. But... I like the idea that um, traditional funds, VCs, hedge funds, and stuff were all outperformed by a uh, a guy with like a Japanese uh, like anime character avatar and a bunch of frogs spamming up only <laughs> for uh, for like nine months. Um, uh, thanks, uh, thanks, Path for uh, for all the alpha. Um, one thing that you said. Uh, one thing that you said. Uh, a second ago was about putting the reps in and just like, you know, seeing something um, so often that uh, it sort of becomes muscle memory or turns into um, intuition. So you know when to ignore um, a certain indicator or when to um, to double down on on like a, a feeling. Um, and I think that is true. Like a lot of uh, a lot of my own trading, my own positions, they always come from like a sort of a feel like an instinct or a feeling of like, hmm, I feel anxious about this. I'm going to close a position or like now is the moment. This is it. Like if this is like, it's like a, a sort of a primal um, intuition rather than like what I expect, uh, at least from Jason, which is a, uh, a more thoughtful and uh, like sort of rational approach to, to, to trading. Um, Jason, can you, can you chat about that? Like how much of um, how much of your, uh, trading stuff is is it like um, a trigger from inside you that just goes now is the moment versus it has to look right on paper you have to do the maths and it has to like line up well. Um, it's mostly around confluence. Uh, and if you if you had to pack it into a nice tight saying, it would be like confluence uh, on your conviction. So like if you're looking if you're seeing if you have your suite of tools that you're using to look at uh, the market you know, through kind of like Travis and their fund have, you know, their proprietary suite of indicators, metrics and all that. Every individual has what they, you know, should value when looking at a market. And so like, if you go through that and you see confluences in a specific area or direction, you should listen to it. If it's spread out, then you should probably try to figure out a way to like reassess either those metrics or what you're looking at. Um, And sometimes you can have conviction and just be like totally, still like wrong. Um, and so like understanding when everything that you've historically found value in tells you one thing, but like you're getting a totally different result from the market. You need to understand like when to back off the pedal and when to just like, just know you're wrong. Even if everything you you're you're seeing and looking at says you're right. Um, which kind of goes back to like, learn the basics first, because the, the thing that most masters have, uh, figured out like like Travis was saying like it's just like using his hand what he's what Travis is actually saying is it's just like breathing it's just like walking um, you put in all these hours and go through all this learning and you go through all of this actual trading time and you kind of just intuitively feel when something's off um, and that's in large part due to your understanding of the basics and that's price action that's with Bitcoin and crypto it's on chain and other factors you know so it's like it's trading is a very hard, like concrete thing, like data driven thing, but then it's also very soft at times. So you just have to be very fluid. Be like water. Water. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> so Was that also Jason? Come on now. <laughs> this is America, bro. Is it, is it Bruce Lee? Yeah, right. Is it? <laughs> I have yeah, no idea. Yeah. 
Let's see here. You like water? Like, yeah. The, oh, yeah. Nailed that. Oh. You definitely got to be fluid. That's, that's really it. Like, you, you can't even, you can't, you, you can be so confident in yourself that, like, you just mess everything up. And so, like, you have to be under, understanding of, like, just everything and, and under just um, the, the key, the biggest thing is just understand when you're wrong and be able to adjust. That's, that's literally it, you know, in addition to everything else. So why don't we take this uh, kind of mindset and fluidity that y'all are talking about and apply it to some of the things we've seen in the market lately? Because in my mind, it seems like a lot of people are trying to identify, like, how do we know when, you know, we're due for some major correction? And are we going to treat uh, Coinbase's public listing as like CME 2.0? And what does it mean when... Um, stuff like safe moon happens or doge goes to 40 cents is that bearish and you know now ethereum looks really strong and bitcoin looks as weak as it's looked in months um so how do you like put up pull all this type of stuff together to form your broader narrative yeah one of the things i'll say on that is this cycle relative to 17 bitcoin's position it's, I think people's understanding of like a base case and an upside case in terms of price performance um, is more well-defined this go around than it was in 17. You know, it's like, you know, I think Bitcoin blew so far past people's expectations um, in the last cycle that and then you were just trying, you know, it's like the value propositions of BTC versus ETH versus freaking dragon chain and like all this other crap, right? Like people just didn't, you know, people just didn't have uh, that well of, of a defined value proposition. And uh, this go around, it, you know, I think there's a lot more structure around it. And, and one of the things that I, I, I keep getting hints at from kind of anecdotal you know, uh, uh, different hints is that there's some people that feel like Bitcoin doesn't have enough meat left on the bone on the long side. Like, it's like a lot of people's base case is like, you know, somewhere a little more than a double from here. They're like, we should, you know, we should be able to punch hundred K, you know, and then TBD on kind of what happens after that. And, you know, I think a lot of people's upside cases, not gonna lie, 600 to 800 K this cycle is the highest I've ever heard. Uh, but there's plenty of, you know, there, there, there's plenty of people talking about base cases into, into the two hundreds and upside cases into the three hundreds. And you can really imagine a, a world where that happens. And, and you have a, a certain set of, of, you know, kind of scenarios that play out where that ends up being the case, you know, but people are looking at that and they're going, okay, my base case is like a double, you know, or maybe, you know, a bit more than a double. And it's like, you know, with, you know, we're in an everything bubble right now. It's not, this is an, this is an all asset class bubble right now that is entirely driven by the largest monetary experiment in human history, which is quantitative easing while simultaneously running increasingly larger deficits on top of increasingly untenable debt levels. And that's just, you know, we're 12 years on into that, except that they really put the pedal to the metal, you know, right at a year ago and now, and they're still going gong show, Right. And, uh, you know, if people were in the mood for a double, you know, it's like, oh, if I was in the mood for a double, I'd buy some weed stocks, 
right? <laughs> and like, that's just not enough juice for me to go into the wacky world of crypto. And I, I really think that that's acting. And it's not just retail that's acting like that. It's really not. It's, you know, I think, I think there's, uh, there's institutions that are acting like that. There's, you know, ultra high net worth family office type of capital. They're just looking at this thing. They're going, well, look, if we're going to go do magic internet money, like I need a, I need a five bagger or a 10 bagger on the table here. And I, and I really think that that is kind of driving folks, uh, down, down market cap from BTC. I think too, like every, you know, if you think of where did you have plenty of opportunity to accumulate Bitcoin and it's really like under 10 K. You know, if you played the the 10K breakout, you assume it's going to new highs, it makes yeah. new highs, you assume it's going to 30K, and that's kind of bracketed our run so far. So what you talk about with like a 10-bagger, the people that bought 10K, like the 100K is their 10-bagger. So do you really want to pull a, try, like try to pull that 2X from 50 um, when like the person that's got a 10X can dump on you and you don't want to be that person getting dumped on uh, late late in that game? And that... That makes it complicated. I agree. Um, in terms yeah. of like how to make that base case, I feel like there's a lack of focus on how to go from where we are right now in crypto to like bringing the rest of the world into crypto. Um, you see a lot of that, uh, you know, that that kind of conversation happening with you know Maker in in the DeFi realm uh, and the whole like real world assets coming on chain, like pretty much any securitized asset coming into the, the crypto sphere. Um, so I think like crypto can get out of what we're all talking about and kind of get into a, like a more fundamentally based, like sound base by bringing the, the actual world into it through that avenue. I don't know. Kind of just rambling. So if I understand correctly, Travis, what you were sort of saying is um, like institutions and like big family offices and stuff, they're like, look, crypto is still this thing we don't really understand. Um, you know, the the mass media and our financial advisors and Goldman Sachs spent the last five or six years telling us not to allocate any of our net worth to uh, to Bitcoin or crypto because it was a scam. It was going to zero. It was a bubble while they were all sort of secret secretly. Um, acquiring it themselves, and then this year they flipped and gone, oh yeah, it's um, a new alternative to gold. It's a hedge on inflation. We actually really like Bitcoin now. So they've had like, you know, five or five plus years of uh, propaganda from either uninformed or intentionally dishonest institutions like big banks or uh, whoever who have had them miss out on uh, the greatest bull run in history. And now... With that sort of uh, that propaganda drilled into them, um, they still think crypto is a bit weird. They still think it's a bit dodgy. They still don't understand it. Now they want to get involved because everyone's making mad returns. But Bitcoin's too high and they think, well, I can't get a good return on Bitcoin anymore because Goldman fucked me by telling me not to buy um, <laughs> 10 years ago, uh, five years ago or whatever. And now they're going to like go full casino and gamble on like Sam coins or <laughs> that was Sam coins, not scam coins. <laughs> Big difference. Well, no, I think it's, I think it's about the amount of capital that has to pour into BTC for this thing to go to a hundred and something. And then, you know, to 200 and something relative to the amount of capital that it has to come into like in, literally any other name. 
right? Yes, yeah, it takes more money to move ETH than other stuff. But I think we all know, if you're an active trader, you know that ETH's a hell of a lot more jumpy than BTC, right? And it, you know, and uh, as soon as you move down market cap, it's just that much more. So it's like, it's almost like, okay, you know, if we're going to go to 100 and something, that's tens and tens of billions of dollars of capital that needs to flow into Bitcoin for us to get there. And then if we're going to go from 100 and something to 200 and something, well, then, you know, now you're talking about, I don't know, a couple hundred, I don't know, hundreds of 100 billion or, or a, a more. And so, so, so if that's your kind of base case, upside case, that means like by definition, you're expecting that magnitude of flow into beats capital flow into BTC. And in order for that to happen, I mean, all these hits that we've been having, all these like real positive news events, like we're just going to have to keep getting more and more and more of that. Like it's like you need Morgan Stanley private wealth management pouring capital into BTC for us to go do 100 and something, then two, you know, then 200 and something. You're going to need, you know, all, you know, all, all that stuff. You're going to need PayPal flying around. You're going to need all these pension funds and these insurance companies and BNY Mellon and State Street. And like you're going to need all of that stuff. Uh, and, you know, and then in the meantime, it's like, <laughs> you know, ETH just like whispers something about deflation through EIP 1559. And like, that's good for double, you know, like it's like, <laughs> oh, you know, it still doesn't work. Right. Like it doesn't actually work. Right. But like that's that, you know, we're good for a double there. And, you know, if this thing actually evolves to proof of stake scale, you know, it's there's just a lot of there's a lot of room left. So um, and that's coming from a guy that. You know, I deeply believe in Bitcoin more than any other crap crypto asset in existence. Like you know, by, <laughs> Freudian, by, Freudian slip, <laughs> crypto <laughs> asset crap. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, and 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 uh, you know, I, you know, I think the the trillion dollar question around literally around this is uh, is BTC going to do a cyclical top or not? And that's just. You know that needs to be question one on 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 everybody's mind. And uh, cyclical top, it, it, cyclical top, meaning if we go mainstream, if it starts getting fully compared to gold, um, you're playing that gold ratio all the way up as like the 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 gold targets. And in a bear market, your dump is what thirty forty percent in a non cyclical top. And yeah, the if it if it maintains its previous macro shifts. You're going to look for a seventy to eighty percent drawdown at least on Bitcoin and ninety five percent on altcoins, and you're you're questioning if it hits the macro landscape fully, can it essentially remove itself from these seventy to eighty percent drawdowns? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, what's, and, what's and, your, and I think what's your about on that. Well, and, and I think about Bitcoin for, through a macro lens probably a lot a lot more than most people, and and. I've been doing that for a couple of years and people used to make fun of me and say that macro doesn't matter for Bitcoin. And I, you know, I hear a lot less of that now. Uh, but, but I, I do think macro is like very, very important for Bitcoin. And if, if we weren't, uh, you know, well on into the largest monetary experiment in human history, uh, we wouldn't be sitting here doing this chat right now uh, because I wouldn't be doing this for a living and the world collectively just wouldn't really care about this thing all that much. And, I, you know, there's, there's technologists and, and, and uh, uh, libertarians and things like that, that like, you know, 
strongly disagree with that, and that's fine. But if the United States was running a balanced budget like they were right now, if the Fed's balance sheet today looked like it looked for the first 90 years of the Fed's existence, like I just don't think people care that much because you can trust you could you'd be able to trust fiat currencies. But that's that's not the world that we're living in. And it is that egregious monetary and fiscal policy that acts as the forcing function for capital to flow into this wacky thing that makes no sense to old people to have a lot of money and a lot of power. Right. Like you need that egregious irresponsibility to to push increasingly more capital towards this thing. And so, you know, all in all of this institutional bid, more or less, they're in this thing for the same reason. It's like a a hedge against monetary supply inflation. And, uh, you know, and so in order to like scare that bid off, which I think is necessary for uh, us to do a cyclical top in that big, deep uh, pullback, something's really got to change on the, on the macro front. Like, like if we're still just going gong show with monetary and fiscal policies, you know, I struggle to see how you're going to, how you're really going to scare that bid off. So then, may, go ahead, Cody. No, after you, let's after you. After you. Uh, so that basically puts you, if I'm understanding correctly, in Suzu's definition of the super cycle, uh, being that the big, you know, eighty percent uh, cycle drawdown is not going to occur this round. Do you basically believe that is going to be the case? And Jason, uh, wants your take on that as well. Yeah, my, um, I think it's pretty close to a coin flip. Because I and I, I I literally think the 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 deciding factor is what's going to happen with monetary and fiscal policies, and you know you can listen to the Fed and see what they're saying. There's there's macro instruments that can give you a hint about what the Fed's going to do. You know before the Fed starts talking about what they're going to do, and uh, you know if we're just still going down this this path that we're going right now. Uh, you know, I, I don't think we're going to, going to do a cyclical top, but if we do, if they try and do this, like, you know, they, you know, friendly reminder that they tried to end the largest monetary experiment in human history. And, you know, we started raising rates in the back part of 2016, and then they kept it very flat, very low. And then we got to 2018 and they really started raising interest rates again. And, uh, you know, the fed Jerome Powell was talking about, he used this term autopilot. For, ro- for raising interest rates and rolling off the balance sheet. And he said, he said uh, the Fed rolling off their balance sheet was going to be like uh, watching paint dry, which is, which is hilarious to think about. Um, because over the course of 2018, every risk asset on the planet started toppling like dominoes, which was punctuated by this dumpster fire for all risk assets globally in Q4 of 18. And that put the bottom into everything. And they did their dovish capitulation in January of 2019, and basically said, okay, we're admitting that there is no plan to end this thing. We cannot do it. There'd be a worldwide asset price collapse and a worldwide recession. And if you tried to unwind that, there's no political willpower to do that, none. So it just kind of remains to be seen if they're going to like pretend to try and do that again, uh, this, this go around, or if they're just going to remain with a level of, of, uh, of easy monetary and fiscal policies. It was like, you know, kind of previously unthinkable. Uh, Jason, are you on the same page? Yeah. Cause I think the key realization is, is like all modern finance is a scam. And so, 
understanding what Travis just talked about, uh, how you just basically look at the central bank uh, policies and to see what direction the market's going to go in. Like that's, that's the scam um, because they literally control this imaginary thing called money and value. Um, I think the fundamental problem with crypto that's being fixed uh, because of DeFi is actual real world value coming into the ecosystem instead of speculative value. Um, and so like, I totally agree with everything uh, Travis just said. I want to tack on that in order to make it so that we don't get the 80% bubble drawdowns because bubbles are speculative and based on, you know, human emotion and basically uh, non-value, I guess you want to imbue our system with value. So imbue it with the real world, imbue it with something lasting and real. Um, and that's where taking all of that control away from, you know, central banks, from that legacy infrastructure that put us in this situation to begin with, we literally offer a sounder value proposition through crypto and DeFi than these legacy institutions. So why wouldn't this value come into our system over that? So like, that's the solution. How do you see, um, how do you see that, uh, that, that money pouring in? So if, um, you know, if what, uh, if what you're saying, if what we're saying here is is right, and you know people are looking at um, uh, Bitcoin as a, a bit risk at these prices, and the the upper uh, or the, the low price targets are, are not high enough for them to take a gamble, do you think a bunch of it's going to flow in through through DeFi? Like, how does um, you know the, the the trillions of dollars that are on the sideline take uh, take exposure? I mean, it's it's my base case that, you know, ETH is going to outperform on the way up. DeFi as an asset class will outperform ETH. Um, other layer ones that are having ETH built on top of it, um, you know, specifically, you know, the Solana ecosystem with the the best executioner in the in the in the space, um, you know, at the helm there. Uh, you know, I think that that's going to do really well. And then if, if BTC does a macro top, it, it would be my base case that all of that is going to, uh, under, underperform, you know, on, on the downside. Um, there's you, a, there, one more thing I'll say about that. There is a, uh, you know, like I talk about Bitcoin reflexivity a ton. I write this monthly update letter that goes out the first of every month. I've been writing it for like two and a half years. And uh, I talk about Bitcoin reflexivity a ton. Bitcoin's the most reflexive asset on the planet. DeFi is uh, definitely more reflexive than Bitcoin. Uh, and that's, you know, all cupcakes and rainbows on the way up. Uh, and on the way down, that's like straight brutality, right? And, uh, you know, I just kind of kind of keep that in mind for the future. What about you, Jay? Sorry, what was the question? I got distracted by a chat. <laughs> the chat's uh, the chat's one hundred x longing when Travis stands up and uh, closing their longs when he sits down. Just FYI, I think that's how the trade is going. For a, for a little while, for a little while, I was trying to I was trying to sync my light with Travis sitting up and uh, standing up and sitting down. So when he stood up, it went green, and when it was sat down, it went red. But then uh, uh, I got distracted because I figured out I can do a new thing with it that I didn't know I could do. Um, Someone in the chat, Travis, they said you, uh, I think they should, uh, they suggested you should rename your fund to Icky Gains. 
(laughs) (laughs) Got it. Um, Yeah. Uh, the question was, Jason, the question was, if, um, you know, people are, if these big institutions are on the sidelines of Bitcoin and they're feeling like they missed out on Bitcoin, where are the trillions of dollars that are on the sidelines? How are they going to allocate? Are they going to um, come in through DeFi for like safe, stable coin yields? Safe in, in air quotes, in case you're listening through a podcast, safe. Um, but um, are they going to come in through DeFi? Are they just going to capitulate and eventually take exposure to Bitcoin? Um, how do you see non-Bitcoin assets um, in, in comparison to Bitcoin over the, the like this year and also the next five? I don't want to pretend to know, but my intuition is this. That's what they want you to do. Just pretend. <laughs> just, <laughs> pretend man. just say, I'm very confident instead of my intuition. Is- <laughs> so like... Look, so like what I've seen so far is, you know, rich people, they don't, they don't like YOLO speculate Lambo, you know, they, they look for ways <laughs> to like manage their risk. Right. And part of that is yields and, you know, the whole, um, assetization kind of complex, you know, and like securitized asset, uh, infrastructure that different countries have built out. So they primarily look for yield. Right. And, you know, that yield. And if they are looking to speculate, like everything's part of this whole like portfolio buffet that they have. And so if they come in, if they want to come in, if that trillions of dollars wants to come in, they want to come in through some regulated route that they have recourse should something go south. Right. And so like people thinking that the old like money, like the trillions of dollars of money will come in just to speculate on safe moon, you know, at all, you know, pretty much any alls. Like that's that's not going to happen, you know. Save for the few that are, you know, have a have a big, you know, risk appetite. But they're going to want this kind of infrastructure to like park that value on that has recourse, that has you know non directional options and things like that. So like, you know, when there's an infrastructure built out that supports that, like that's that's when they'll start coming in. And like, there's already demand for it and infrastructure is already like built. There's like off the top of my head, there's like two or three offerings that already do this and are launching this year, if not this quarter, but like, yeah, like they're, they're going to need this infrastructure, you know? Um, and that's, that's why what, what DeFi is doing is important because it's building it from scratch outside and then it's pulling that value in. So those things that are launching, is there stuff like that is uh, active today that people are using that they that they see as a route in, or is it all going to be um, new infrastructure, new projects? So again, I didn't, didn't quite understand. So is there stuff you know in in DeFi today that is like a, a viable route in for uh, a lot of this sidelined money, or do you think all of it is going to be um, new projects yet to launch? Um, there's this project called uh, Provenance that's pretty uh, compelling. Um, there's a whole infrastructure around real-world assets, like I've mentioned before, that a number of protocols are kind of launching. Um, the premier uh, one being Maker. Um, and I think um, you're, you're going to get, you know, the whole stable of DeFi blue chips participating in that. Uh, you got like Compound and Aave supporting that whole flow. Um, so anything that follows that basic rubric um, that has, you know, 
fundamentally like better value propositions in terms of costs, efficiencies, fees, transparency, auditability, like they're just going to outcompete legacy and bring that money in. You know, money isn't loyal. Like capital is not loyal. So it'll go where it's most efficient. It's most uh, productive. And that's what DeFi is. Do you, do you think um, either of you, when you're ta- Travis, you're talking about the reflexivity of the market and how it's even more reflexive when it's in DeFi. Do you think a lot of that is because the yield itself is so tied to the value of the tokens that are used for governance? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and it's and 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 people are thinking about value, you know, market cap relative to TVL, which is like a, a you know deeply circular type of thing. And uh, like I said, that's that's all great to the upside, but um, you know, it re- it remains to be seen what you know what's going to happen if if kind of this whole thing rolls over, you know, and I, and I feel like I'm like, I feel like I sound too bearish on this thing. Uh, Cause I definitely <laughs> think we're going higher, not, in, not investment advice, but like, you know, highly confident that we're, we're going higher. So uh, I don't mean to be a bit, you know, like that, that's not my view at all. It's not the portfolio that we have on right now. And uh, but, you know, there's just, I don't know, man. I mean, I mean, I feel like a huge part of my job is, uh, to just constantly think about the risks and to, uh, you know, sometimes the tail risks, the kind of unknown unknowns in crypto, like you kind of have to overprice those sometimes. And that may mean that you're going to miss out on some returns from time to time. But, you know, above all, this asset class is going to, uh, you know, outperform like all asset classes. And that's my base case over a one year, three year, five year, 10 year, maybe 20 year time frame. And uh, if you just stay in the game, uh, you know, it's probably going to work out real well for everybody. And and so, um, you know, it's, it's just things that I constantly keep in the back of my mind. What about the bear you- case for yield? Uh- so if it's tied to the value of a governance token while they're not really delivering uh, whatever, the token value accrual, the fees aren't going back to token holders on many of these, but they're just assuming that it will in the future, so that's why Uniswap is so expensive. But do you think that there's a, a positive spin on the bear case where the governance itself may not be considered very valuable, but there is fee accrual going back to tokens? Um do you think that'll essentially create a attractive floor for DeFi to continue to be a place where people want to park money? Did that make any sense? <laughs> I think I think Travis. Oh wait, no, you, you're still there. Where is that to Travis or me? Uh, either of you, Jason, go for it. Oh, th- oh, sorry, I thought that was to Jason. Yeah, I think the I think the fundamental answer is this: like it just has to be attached to cash flows and real world value. What that is in concrete forms, like it kind of just doesn't it doesn't matter because there's so many forms of that. And if a governance token is a representation of that of those flows, like like take gambling for example, like you know internet gambling. I don't know if any of you guys know like a bunch of poker players or participated in the poker boom in like the early two thousands. You know that whole model you know, and all those sites, you know, they have cash flows and those balances. They're like, they're, they're a version of that. Right. And so if you can have a gambling website or service 
done through DeFi, which is totally possible. Um, like that's, that's one version of that. You know, you can have home equity lines of credit or other avenues for yield. Um, you know, the governance token is just like, it's like a DAO. I don't know if you heard about what they did in Wyoming. Uh, they made DAOs legally like legal entities now. Yeah. Uh, so that's pretty cool. So like, say, say for the like example, you could spin up your own DeFi uh, game with like gambling, right? And you have this governance token and it accrues value and cash flows, you know, from all the fees, like the rake from every game that you have on your platform that's paid, you know, to your vault or to your token, you know, in your pool and you get those fees, like that's real value. And it's more real than, you know, safe moon or something. Um, <laughs> like, like, you know, something very basic like that. Like there's this project called pints. That's like basically that. And, you know, you have, all, <laughs> you have all these other projects that are just doing the same thing like that, like that model, like making Sheldon Adelson, like rolling his grave. Um, my you friends, don't think my friends Jack and Dale off. are like over the moon right now that you just mentioned pint. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. What is pint? It's a game. Someone in chat said pint with loads of question marks. I don't know what it is. I was like keeping quiet in case everyone knew, but if people don't know, I'm asking. It's a game. It's a, it's a real shit coin, but it's a game that produces fees. <laughs> um, and I think it gets to Jason's point though. Like you can create a fee structure into various like decentralized apps, games, casinos, anything. Um, and then that fee structure becomes the yield for the people that are providing the operating capital basically. Right. Pretty much. Yeah. The, the thing that DeFi has enabled and the, the token distribution and funding model uh, versus like the classic ICO funding model, like it allows like a very friendly, like institute, uh, what do you call it? Regulatory friendly, framework and pathway to uh, bootstrapping these networks, um, getting to a sufficient level of, you know, decentralization, and then boom, you have actual value coming into that. And then you have this self-sustaining system that just grows and you don't have to deal with the regulatory bullshit from that. Have you, have you guys talked about the uh, Hester Pierce's um, kind of sandbox regulatory framework that she put out? It was maybe like two weeks ago or something like that. Yeah. It was like a V2 of it, wasn't it? Um, yeah, I forget what um, it's called, but yeah, she's, she's definitely like the crypto, uh, you know, friend on the federal reserve, super, board. super solid. And, you know, I, I don't really have a way to gauge about the likelihood of that getting passed in, in that incantation as it's, as it's written, but you know, that's the most senior sec commissioner, uh, there is, there's the chairman and then she's been around the longest after that. And, having that kind of uh, supporter in uh, Washington on the, on the security side, like you shouldn't, you know, don't discount how important that is. And uh, maybe it's worth like um, expanding on that a a little bit more because this kind of like, you know, what's the U what's the U S government going to do with, you know, Bitcoin specifically crypto broadly. Yeah. That's certainly one of, if not, the most talked about risk it's a, a lot of people's you know top of their list for you know kind of kind of biggest systemic risks to, to crypto um especially after you know tether is like you know no no longer a risk which is obviously outstanding and it is a big risk you know some sort of heavy-handed regulatory or taxation 
uh, move that just like sends this thing into oblivion. Like there is, there is some real risk that that happens, but however, however you were waiting that risk a year ago, you need to weight it much, much lower currently. And that's like, that's the important thing that I think if people, and maybe everybody watching this like pays a lot of attention to crypto. And so they kind of realize uh, like how, how far that we've traveled in terms of that risk. But for people that aren't paying that close attention, they, they lose track of, of uh, you know, like in America, the people with the power and the money make the rules. And, you know, you can hate that or you can love that, but that's kind of the state of things right now. And to the extent that you have people with, with power and money that are also long Bitcoin, that acts as a buffer against some heavy handed regulatory or, or, or taxation act. And uh, politicians and elected officials or, 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 or rather appointed officials in the United States, these are human beings. They have career histories. They have uh, networks. They have allegiances. Uh, they've got people that they pay attention to. They go to country clubs. Their kids go to school with other kids that have parents as well, too. Like these, like, and, you know, when, you know, Paul Tudor Jones is connected. Stanley Druckenmiller is connected. The folks that run PayPal are connected. Mass Mutual is an insurance company that's older than the light bulb. Uh, <laughs> you know, B- BNY Mellon is the third oldest bank in the United States. State Street is the second oldest bank in the United States. Elon Musk is the second richest dude in the United States. Like the, like these things, these re- all these pension funds that are involved in this stuff, um, like that really serves as a buffer. And uh, on the on the political side, you know, Cynthia Loomis, like that's a that is a card carrying Bitcoiner. Yeah. Like she likes Bitcoin as much as I like Bitcoin. She's I mean, a it's, senator and she's from on Wyoming. She, yeah, she's a U.S. senator, and she's on the Senate Banking Committee. You know, like kind of ground zero for where you would try and run through a heavy handed regulatory or, or, or taxation deal. And there's a bunch of congressmen as well too, U S congressmen that are also super supportive. And, uh, you know, Gary Gensler who just replaced Jake Clayton as the head of the sec, Gary Gensler taught a class at MIT called blockchain and finance. And he co-authored a book called like, I don't know, like blockchain in the future of money or, or, or something like yeah. that. And, you know, so that's obviously, uh, you know, a a large incremental positive relative to Jay Clayton, who everybody kind of thought was was uh, a crypto bear. Right. Except for what was Jay Clayton's first job that he took when he stepped down as SEC chairman? Probably Ripple. (laughs) No. Anybody anybody know off the top of their head? Uh, Pump and dumper on Uniswap. I think he's he working. was named as an he was named as an official advisor to One River Asset Management, which is the the, the macro firm that bought like seven hundred million dollars worth of Bitcoin back last fall. Started telling the world about it, and has now basically become like a pseudo you know Bitcoin vehicle. And Jay Clayton's an official advisor. So, however it is that you were waiting the likelihood that we get some super heavy handed regulatory or, or taxation event, you got to bring that way down. And that should bring your base case target price way up because of, of, of how big of a, of a risk that is. I think it was the Bitwise uh, license guy, not Bitwise. What was the bit, the New York uh, regulation? Um, 
the 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 license? New York Department of Financial yeah, Services. The, yeah, the bit license. The main regulator for the bit license is the guy that went to Ripple, which was like peak. Just that just makes me sick. That kind of stuff, but the bit um, license was pretty trash, wasn't it? Yeah, bit it license. was garbage. It was garbage. <laughs> pretty, I, pretty trash. But I think what that brings me to is there's a couple of different routes this stuff could go. I agree with you. There's a massive risk potential for crypto assets and especially like DAOs and DeFi stuff where they can try to clamp down on it and just say like, no, you can't do this, but they're going to lose to the rest of the world if they do that. So I feel like the next best thing is to try to create some kind of regulatory capture where, you know, you essentially put the power of these, these things into the hands of the bank so that the same people end up maintaining the power in the long term. Do you, do y'all think that's a, a threat or, um, like what? What? How can how can DeFi like the promise of DeFi be neutered in your opinion? Let's start with Travis, I guess. Um, I mean, uh, there, there's certainly regulatory risk. You know, are some of these going to be securities? Um, what's what's Gary Gensler going to going to do about that? I think that definitely remains to be seen. Uh, Hester Pierce's proposal certainly acts as a, a strong, you know, buffer from that, you know, TBD on what's going to happen there. And then, you know, it's like, what is traditional finance going to do? Um, they, they're already getting run over, like almost every which way, right? And you've got, you know, neo neo banks and... Um, you know, all, all of these different financial services, fintech companies and uh, like they're, they're like traditional banks are like kind of the butt of every joke. Right. And so it, it, it certainly seems like they're they're going to get kind of innovated, you know, out of existence or or, uh, you know, maybe they end up having to buy, you know, a bunch of tech or financial services companies. And and, and I'm not exactly sure how that's going to play out, but you know, specifically how traditional finance ends up adopting, you know, or lack thereof, of, you know, DeFi protocols and things like that. I mean, that's going to be really interesting to watch. And I, I struggle to think that that's like this year or even next year, but it certainly could be like 24, 25. Yeah. I just feel like there's a lot of wiggle room for, you know, stuff that would be dif- more difficult for the uh, the ecosystem to adapt to, like KYC on DEXs, as an example. Like, I feel like that's probably inevitable, and it's just going to be another thing that makes access for Americans significantly um, more limited. Uh, Jason, did you have anything to add on, like, the regulatory threats to all of this, or do you think DeFi will kind of pull an Uber and just plow through all of those potential barriers? So I'm not as bearish on traditional financial institutions as a lot of people in crypto and I guess Travis might be because like I keep coming like when I think about your question like I keep coming back to the central thought like that like true power doesn't really like relinquish its power very easily and so when you take a look at you know these institutions and the power they have they're not just going to roll over what they're probably going to do is you know go on an acquisition spree um, and just acquire everything because DeFi is just a huge efficiency boom. You know, it's a huge boom. Um, 
And so it's a, it's a chance for them to even further consolidate power. And so I think the real risk isn't regulatory because the whole point is to make it so that, you know, DeFi is operable within the confines of the regulatory regime that we're, we're all operating under, whether it's the US, Europe, whatever, India. Um, but it's going to be what does, what do those banks or institutions do to those protocols when they're acquired? Yeah. Um, that's the real, I think, threat. Because if they're just going to leverage them, like these, these networks, if they're just going like, to invest in them and then you know, close them off, you know, invest in these open, you know, decentralized gardens and then slowly close them off. Like that's going to happen anyway. So the real threat is, do we want to actually like sell to these people or, you know, give them that kind of authority in this realm through that, through their buyouts or their consolidations, or do we want to leverage DAOs to the furthest you know, possible extent where you have this community of, of like, you know, leaders who have uh, this kind of, unspoken trust or at least earned trust to like build these offerings in the spirit that we're all kind of like leaning towards in this, in this little, you know, not little, but like global movement. So that's where I think the true threat lies. It's not in like the little minutia, but it's in the, the big like power moves of like, of those, of that group. Yeah, that makes sense. I think it's probably right. I think a lot of the regulation that is to come is probably around KYC. Because um, if you think about DeFi, for regulators, it's in, in some ways, it's a dream come true, right? It puts things, um, makes things more transparent for them. It puts things on chain. There's like a, uh, a publicly auditable rule set that you can um, like read the code of that like is operating the underlying system um for regulators like that's what they want they don't want uh some dude who gets paid two million a year sitting in an office making decisions that where he doesn't properly understand or can't quantify the risk or and and the, the knock-on effects of his decision on um on consumers and on uh the wider market whereas with DeFi. You get to you get to see um, exactly what it, it, people are using, what what like the code that is operating it does, um, etc. The main thing the regulators don't like is that oh he's fucking stood up again. I've got to turn the light green. <laughs> I was talking. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's not well, dude, green. I mean, this market can't chill out for two seconds while we're trying to have a conversation. Yeah, Travis uh, is like like pushing the leverage button across, like the slider. Peak leverage, uh, <laughs> trading his own, you know, stance. Uh, just can't, uh, got watching anyway, the sorry. five minute candles. Sorry, I've got to continue. So um, the the main thing that the regulators don't like is that you can um, very very easily circumvent the Bank Secrecy Act um, by using like crypto protocols, right? And the Bank Secrecy Act is just, it's like, they should just rename it. It's the Bank Spying Act. It's like, we want to look at all your financial data. We want to know exactly what's happening with all of your transactions. Even if you send like $2 to someone, we want to know where it came from, where it's going. Um, and that's the thing the regulators don't like. Um, they, they, you know, the, the anti-money laundering um, uh, stuff. And I think that is the main thing that will get... Um, over the next sort of three years will be the main change in crypto regulation is going to be how they deal with um, KYC. 
Like I can imagine a future where MetaMask has to comply with KYC. Um, like every, to log in to, to, or to sign up to MetaMask, you have to KYC your account. And yeah, sure, there'll be um, a clone of MetaMask that strips out the KYC, uh, uh, blah, blah, blah. But I think that's the main change that's coming. And I don't see it as necessarily bearish for crypto. It's very annoying um, as a user because the user experience of constantly doing it KYC for every single um, uh, service you use and having to trust them with your data is terrible. Um, but, you know, when you have, like, when you're KYC'd, it's not the end of the world. Um, like, I pre- personally would prefer not to do it, but I don't see it as necessarily bearish for the price of crypto. I don't think there's a gigantic yeah. market of people that just disappear because now they have to give their identity, um, I, I reckon. Um, but uh, that's how that's how I'm thinking about I, it. Anyway. What, what I struggle with for um, having to deal with KYC stuff is then – if they're dealing with American regulators, they then just also re- prevent you from having access to like the most attractive tokens. Um, so if there's any threat of it being a security or something, it's just like, okay, well, this is on um, Bitrex Global instead of primary Bitrex. I, I, that was the 2017 version, but um, <laughs> I don't know what made me think of Bitrex. But like... You know, FTX versus FTX, FTX US versus .com. Like, there's just a whole different slate of assets. So I don't care so much about having to provide KYC, even though I don't love it. It's more of like, okay, then then they turn off the vast majority of assets because they're so-called protecting me from, you know, stuff that might hurt me. And I just think it serves the backwards purpose. Yeah, but equally, if you had, um, if you had KYC everywhere... You'd be very, it'd be trivial for you to prove that you're uh, an accredited investor because you'd have an accreditation token that's linked to your um, wallet, which is like, and then all of a sudden it opens up your access to those things because it allows the uh, seller a an API to do accreditation easily, which at the moment is impossible because there's no identity. So they just ban everyone from the US to like sort of cut off that... um, cut off that like worrying about uh, that as a market so i don't know i don't know it can go um it it could go either uh, either way i guess um but yeah who uh who knows um so the chart has identified that the price is nuking um bitcoin 518 who cares about bitcoin anymore anyway um bitcoin 518 jason What's going on? Are we are we going to zero? Are we going to be saved? Um, so that's that's pretty interesting. So there's a number of scenarios playing out right now. One's purely distribution schematic, and I know you know a lot of people have been following this for the last few months, and people are on Twitter are like, "Oh my god, why are you calling this distribution? It's totally not distribution." But guess what? It's distributing. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> like. If you understand, if you want to understand why ETH BTC is going up, you know not only is ETH USD ha- has it gone up, like it, you know it's used. It, it, that's why ETH BTC is also going up. But like, um, yeah, it's it's following this distribution schematic literally to the T. Like for the last, you know, ever since February or so. Um, so this could break at any moment and resume up. And like on chain, still looks pretty reasonable. I have been. Uh, bearish at some points on some of the old valuation metrics, like uh, some of the profit and loss metrics seem kind of super high. Some of the, 
um, like traditional valuation metrics like MVRV, uh, some of these other ones, they look pretty high. So like all in all, like I am in favor of alts here more than Bitcoin. And I think people should understand if they want to survive this market, they need to adjust. And so like looking at the way that value is flowing between different markets just because you're a Bitcoin maximalist doesn't mean you should just always be in Bitcoin if you're also a value maximalist or a profit maximalist. Um, so like the base case that I'm working with right now is like we're, we're distributing some sort of PA or we have a PA that is distributive in, in some sort of way right now because it's literally following the distribution metric. But there are alts that look very good and have been good. So um, I'm pretty much just fully alts right now. Um, and I hope everyone else is too. But. <laughs> so you're you're mainly in alts for the on the relative basis. Do you think that um, they is good. that just where you want to maintain your risk? Like, so if everything goes down, you think they'll go up relative to BTC. But if everything goes up, you think they'll go up faster. Basically, I just look at the USD charts, and based on like you know my my bullishness on DeFi, I'm long with you. Uh, DeFi coins right now and Ethereum as well. Um, I think you should just always have an invalidation on your trade and just when it reaches there, just cut, cut the trade. Um, so like that's kind of what I did uh, earlier this month when, or I think it was like last week actually, when BCC started going down, you know, kind of just shifted more towards ETH, um, put on some alt trades and kind of just, did that. Um, I think if you're spot long PTC, just hold. Like you, the only way to lose money right now is by selling on a short enough time frame where you don't see the actual realization of your trade uh, happen. So BTC going to its cycle top. Um, so yeah. And when you look at alts for um, like taking a long or taking like an active position, what's in scope and what's um, out of scope are you like taking um like blue chip or above a certain market cap only or are you like degening going on a binance scam chain and finding the latest tiktok trend um i'm not as in the weeds with the the binance smart uh chain or whatever it's called scam chain um, <laughs> so like you know people that are doing that like who's like i did that in like 2017 you know it was you know my group of all trader friends then and it's like there's a time and place for that i think it's when your your role is a little bit small and then you want to grow it and then you can still do that you know with a huge bankroll uh you just got to like manage your risk appropriately and size appropriately um so like i think all of that is fair game you just have to understand you know principles of risk management sizing um and you know basic security checks you know for like the quality of the projects you know and then just just do that because like cryptos the thing about crypto is it it, like it's going to change the world until it goes down 80 (laughs) percent um so (laughs) if you've been through enough cycles you understand like you always just want to have a healthy system of profit taking um and risk management so if if you're going to look like yes look at those micro caps like you know, put 5k into this, you know, 500,000 market cap coin because the risk reward is like super great. Uh, it also depends on like where the, the cycle is at. Like, you know, earlier in the year, 
uh, like December, January, you know, DeFi blue chips were like really well positioned cyclically uh, and had a really good value proposition, like, you know, risk reward to them. And so that was a great trade. Um, now it's kind of questionable in some senses, but like the, the fundamental proposition is still there and it's growing. So like from a longer time horizon view, sure. Like these DeFi blue chips, absolute buys. Um, how you want to trade them? Like, you know, do you want to day trade them? I don't particularly like to. Um, so, um, the yeah, chat, that's the chat says Travis is day trading right now. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> they want to know if you've capitulated your long. <laughs> <laughs> Not selling. <laughs> how do you, uh, how do you manage your portfolio risk? Um, you know, uh, Jason was just talking about how he's, extraordinarily overweight alts, at least relative to BTC, unless I got that wrong, Jason. Um, Do y'all, Travis, do y'all maintain core position percentages no matter what? Um, And how do you manage rebalancing and stuff like that? Yeah, so so north of 85% of our AUM since September 2019 has been in this programmatic discretionary strategy, which was entirely BTC until about six weeks ago. And now we've, we've been trading ETH systematically as well too. And so, you know, that leaves, you know, a small percent of the portfolio left over for some other stuff. And FTT has been a big chunk of that. I'm pretty sure I've never sold a dollar of FTT. I don't think. (laughs) Uh, And uh, we've got, we own a bit of Solana as well too. Um, And then a smattering of, of other DeFi names that are, that are interesting. And, uh, we brought a DeFi guy on board a couple months ago and had been doing more work there. And, um, yeah, I think there's, you know, there's, uh, certainly a lot of opportunity, um, there in, in, in terms of, in terms of, of BTC, um, I mean, I really try not to do like short-term price predictions, but maybe, you know, maybe we go sweep the lows here or go wick a lower low, but I'm really not seeing much of anything that's making me think that this party's over, um, both, you know, from a time perspective and from a price perspective. And, uh, you know, were we running a little hot? Yeah, we were definitely running hot. But we we licked $10 billion Saturday night across all, all names, all exchanges. And that's just a, a very big, healthy wipe. So in terms of like having a bunch of meat left on the bone for us to go a lot lower, like I think something because because, again, there's so much institutional capital that's waiting to buy a pullback. And uh, they either haven't bought their first dollar of Bitcoin yet or, you know, they didn't get anywhere close to a full position when they initially bought. And so when you get, you know, dips like this, they're viewed as buying opportunities unless something big has changed. And now, look, you know, this all this tax chatter, like, okay, I get it. That could potentially stress the market and we'll see how that how that plays out. But um, I mean, Biden was extremely clear about that all the way through. There was like, you know, rich people were going to get their taxes raised on them and you know, so so that feels a little bit more like a excuse to sell off than actual, you know, new news to drive significant downside. So, so I, I really don't see much. I assume everybody's heard about that. But if people are listening to this later, this is based on 
uh, today what essentially established the local top is that the Biden administration announced a desire to raise uh, long-term capital gains taxes on people that make more than a million dollars a year. Well, they re-announced it, right? The initial yeah. announcement was in like February or January or something. Yeah, but it was basically so like that the- they wanted to like pursue it now, but there's no guarantee that it's going to pass. And then when you actually look at who it's going to impact, it's a lot of money, but it's not a high percentage of people. Yeah. Right. And- but I mean, like... That, that, that's all the money in the, in the markets though, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> like, it'll, probably, like, it'll probably hit like the bubble stocks and stuff the hardest if it, uh, if it impacts the markets and retails the one, the ones holding those bags. So, you know, like most things, it'll probably impact people that, uh, they didn't intend for it to. Yeah. Somewhere in the world, a 15 year old dumped his safe moon and his dog at break even <laughs> so that he doesn't, so he can avoid paying 40% capital gains tax. He doesn't know what that means, but... Um, but that is he, the type of thing that I guess could cause a, uh, a a higher level, higher time frame breakdown if that like really catches wind. I don't know. I don't know, man. I don't know. It's been really, <laughs> really well, you know, well known. And, and um, I mean, yes, look, equities were running hot anyways. So they kind of needed a reason to pull back a bit and consolidate some. Um but, you know, I really don't think this is some larger change. So, buy the dip. Yeah, I'm hoping that I'm hoping that you get a decent dip on Bitcoin that doesn't completely obliterate everything. Um, and just like macro stays same, everything resumes. I'm hoping that ETH continues to climb against Bitcoin. You just like broke out the um three year high or whatever i think like a thousand day high um and if you can uh if east can continue to hold strength against bitcoin during the um during the dip i think that's pretty good um if everything goes to zero well i mean we'll have no viewers left so we won't have a follow <laughs> we won't have a follow-up stream and no, no just, one that's watching watching manages their wrist today no they're all i just I- I just checked into this uh, live chat on Twitch. Uh, let the record show that I have not sold a dollar of anything while we've been on this. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, man, it's that they're shorting every time you sit down. That's how it's working. <laughs> it's, actually, it's actually a ledger. Ledger ledger's the uh, market. market. The ledger's been dumping us every single up-only episode since yeah. the beginning. Yeah. No one would no one suspect him. Nobody suspects me. I'm just Prometheus of the plebs. <laughs> Just pushing the market down uh, in secret. Um, I think the last thing that I'm curious about is what y'all think in terms of um, crypto companies going public and the impact that'll have either on crypto markets or like establishing the crypto category in legacy markets since both of y'all have legacy experience. Uh, What kind of thoughts do you have around that? Jason, you want to go? I was about to say, you want to go? <laughs> yeah, Travis, go for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I asked the question again. The uh, the role of Coinbase going public and you know being the first to a new category essentially in public markets because uh, they're not you know a lot of companies are going to go public and if you what you think that does in terms of you know being a piece of the analysis pie. Yeah, it's great. I mean, you know, it's certainly going to bring way more attention from traditional to kind of crypto broadly. And, 
you're going to ha- have this big kind of marquee company that's going to do quarterly earnings calls and um, you're going to have sell side equity research that's, you know, writing buy recommendations on this thing and, um, you know, forming, forming theses around it. And, you know, they're going to be active in the capital markets. So you're going to have, you know, capital markets bankers that are, that are doing stuff. And certainly I think, you know, opens the door for, um, other crypto companies to either, you know, SPAC, you know, depending on, uh, you know, how well that market holds up. It's, you know, it's certainly chilled out a lot relative to earlier this year and, and late last year, but you could certainly see some crypto SPACs and, um, just more, more crypto companies going public. And, you know, that's all, that's all bullish stuff. I mean, to paraphrase Paul Tudor Jones, I mean, I think, Coinbase is the less fast horse, you know, it, it, it would be, you know, my base case expectation that like, it's like if Bitcoin doubles from here, is Coinbase stock going to double? Like, I don't know. May, I don't know. Maybe. Um, it seems like, it just seems like it's going to act like lower beta Bitcoin. And if you manage a pool of capital that you, you can't get Bitcoin exposure in, um, you know, then maybe coin can be a great answer for you in the same way that sailor got all these convert funds to do is convert. Right. And that's, and that's all good. Um, you know, but it, I would just guess it's going to participate in less of the upside and it's going to get, you know, smoked less bad to the downside. If I had to guess, Jason, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think it's all well and good. Um, I'm not as like, deep into traditional as Travis or have a, you know, that deep of a history have relationships there, but it's definitely progress. It may not be the progress. Some, uh, perfectionist crypto perfectionists want. Um, but I think it's, it's progress. So as long as you can make a company and take it public and it generates revenues and it's native to crypto, that's positive. And as long as you can benefit asymmetrically, from that versus your competitors in your respective markets. Like that's, that's the whole proposition here. So it's a shame that SPACs aren't still like proper pumping off because if they were, we could just SPAC up only TV, like half the SPACs, <laughs> they've got no revenue. They don't have anything who like, everyone's going to buy a SPAC called up only, aren't they? Like who's not going to want to buy that? We could have, we could have been billionaires. We could have been multi-billionaires, Ledger. And it's all, it's all Chamak's fault because he's like fucking dumped all the markets. He sold it all to like, I don't know, what's he going to do with his money? Save the ocean or something. There's uh there's still plenty of SPAC uh, exploration occurring. I'm sure we still have time, but we'd be like really late. And ours would be the one that goes like to sub $10 and they end up redeeming and taking it back from us. <laughs> no, we just, we just make sure there's a clause. That means we can't do that. No, no refunds clause up only no refunds. <laughs> there's all, you know, somebody already released an up only scam on BSC. Uh, so, Oh yeah. I saw that. I looked at, I looked at the chart. It was just like dumping as well. I was like, I'm, they got what they deserved. They got what they deserved. I'm putting, you su- know what? I'm putting suits together now. You know, if if you're if you're watching um if you're watching this stream and you're you know you've been thinking about your portfolio one thing that you need to realize is you have the portfolio performance that you deserve like the returns that you get are the returns you deserve so when you're like thinking about it, like oh i got scammed someone someone fucked me no that was you 
That was your that was yourself. You made those decisions. That's how you ended up where you are. You deserve the returns that you've got. Um you need to change it, change your ways, uh change your ways for the future. Um Alright. Uh we've been streaming for like uh an hour forty. Um I wanna wrap it up, but I need the final alpha for the chat. Look, the chat is full full of not gonna make it, full of people begging uh for some way to be free from uh the situation they've created for themselves. They need to get out. They want a brighter future. Uh like the old orange T V adverts, yeah, they want that. Or was it um Kobe. the Red Bull advert? Kobe, you're not a big enough believer in the chat. The chat is going to make it. Some of the some of them are going to make it. They're, yeah, but there's like maybe like six of them. <laughs> <laughs> so I seen a few people. I seen a few people in chat going to make it because I saw CMS interns in there. CMS, yeah, CMS interns, interns going to make, make it. it. But uh, I think like ninety percent of the chat are not going to make it through the cycle. If I'm being honest, if I'm being reasonable, it's because they they're like very selective about what advice they take, right? So they like they follow the advice, which is like. This is gonna go. This is gonna go up 10x tomorrow. They're like, yeah, I'll definitely fucking follow that advice. When they take the advice, like you should learn these things, you should protect your downside risk, you should consider, um, you know, uh, reducing your expectations by like fucking 75. percent They're like, no, fud, fud. <laughs> I don't believe you. Uh, like up only. Um, so I think the majority of them will not um, will not make it between cycles and honestly making between cycles is hard like there were people in the original 27 club which was a group chat that i created in 2013 um it was like a group of friends that like helped each other guide each other through the uh, market and like like half of them are half of them are gone they're um uh they're like you know got in at the same point as me and had the same opportunities i did and i shared my like thoughts with them the whole way through we all shared with each other and um they're like like half of them are gone. They don't they don't trade anymore. They got wiped out or whatever. So it's hard. It's not like it's like uh, an easy thing to do. Um, but right now, Travis, Jason, you have to make it a little bit easier for the chat. You need Give to know. Shot. They need to know how to survive multi cycles. They need to know how to get rich or how to live a better life, a happier life. They need some alpha, some wisdom that you live your life by. Um, in order to uh, to make themselves more profitable or just more at peace, Travis, what do you got for us? Some alpha for the chat. St- stop fucking shit coining. Like, <laughs> what's the shit coin? I don't know. If you don't know, ask somebody that you're friends with and knows more about crypto than you do. But uh, stop doing that shit. Probably my bags. <laughs> <laughs> you did like you deserve you deserve what you get if you're going to do something like that. So, you know, I'm definitely, I'm not a Bitcoin maximalist at all. You know, I think there's a bunch of different use cases for blockchain technology. When we evaluate these different use cases, we ask ourselves four questions. How ready is the tech for the world? How ready is the world for the tech? What do you need decentralization for? And how decentralized is decentralized enough? I think Bitcoin much more fully and convincingly answers those four questions than any other crypto asset in existence. But that's not to say that I'm not hopeful for uh, the rest of the space because I am and and we're paying a lot of attention to it. Um, But like, you know, 
if you're going to rip safe moon and doge and this and the other, like, I don't know what to tell you, man, you're going to get, you're, you're going to get what, what you deserve. So, um, yeah, that's, that's what I got for you. Don't, don't sell here. If you're along Bitcoin, don't sell here. This party is not over. <laughs> All right, Jason. Yeah, I think just think adversarially and always understand how to protect yourself and profit taking is never wrong. Um, that being said, like always give you, give yourself an out and, you know, so that you don't die the first time you're wrong. (laughs) How, how do you, um, how do you think adversarial? Like what is your, um, someone's calling me from San Francisco. I don't know who that is. Um, what is your, uh, (laughs) I heard you wanted to do a SPAC. Um, uh, yeah, how do you think adversarially? Like, what does that mean in in the crypto market? Is it like understanding who else is participating in the positions they're in, and therefore extrapolating information from that, or um, or what else? Um, it could mean it like a whole range of things, but like you know, I think the the saying for every buyer there's a seller, every seller there's a buyer. You know, if you're doing an OTC deal, like you're someone else's alpha. If but you could be, you could be, you know selling to someone else and they're your alpha or whatever. So like there's, that's what I mean. Like modern finance is a scam. So this is all about protecting yourself, you know, in every facet. So like if you engage in any sort of trade, like everything's a trade. So you just got to think, how can I lose? What am I risking? What's the potential reward? Is this reasonable? And like, just ask very basic fundamental questions that are based around preserving you if you're wrong and maximizing your value if you're right and then just being being okay and willing to see that trade that you're making like play out on whatever time frame that you're trying to see it play out on like that's the biggest thing like people like cut their trades too short and they just spaz so like just ask questions understand where you can get hurt understand the opportunity and you know make it so that you can play tomorrow if, you, if you're wrong there you go, Chuck. Kobe, we're we're too powerful. Up only streaming is uh, a greater signal than a Peter Schiff bear tweet. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we got to. I blame Biden. The ch- I blame Biden. It was Biden's fault. Trump should have won. <laughs> it's, it's Biden's fault. The chat is literally begging us to get off of the stream just to end it now, so that the market can go back up. And I swear, it's going to do it to the tick. Everybody. Not financial advice, but if I was looking for a long, I might consider uh, whenever this stream ends as a decent entry. <laughs> I mean, it started dumping before the stream went live. Uh, if we'd been on time, if we'd been on time, however, if we'd started on time, it would have been the absolute point. <laughs> Kobe was so like, the, I'm not the, starting the stream yet. <laughs> the market maker just didn't anticipate our delays. Yeah. Uh, um, all right. Well, Ledger, you told me not financial advice, so I'm going to 100x long here, and when I get liquidated, I'm going to ask you for a refund. Sounds uh, good. I'm too poor to pay you, the refunds anyway. You didn't, so. you didn't say no refunds, so I, <laughs> I, that means I can get one. Uh, Travis, Jason, thanks so much for coming on. Chat, you're going to make it. You just have to listen to them, protect yourself from downside risk, have a probabilistic approach to the future, uh, and prepare yourself for any situation. Ledger, see you next time. Thanks for being here. Go to uponly.tv slash blockfolio. Along the bottom today, you can do it there. 
if that's your choice. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Thanks for joining us. We'll uh, put links and everything on uponly.tv. You can check them out. Appreciate all of y'all being here with us. We'll talk to you next time.